Our summer series is called Bible Blockbusters, and it's really about God's epic story, his role in history, and how he uses ordinary people, people like you and I, to do extraordinary things. And today I want us to look at the book of Nehemiah and that, that person of Nehemiah. So if you happen to have a Bible or a Bible on your phone, you want to follow along, I'd invite you to turn to Nehemiah chapter 1. We're going to be looking at a couple of, of the chapters in some detail. But I was drawn to Nehemiah partly because uh, I, I believe it's a great story. And Nehemiah reminded me of uh, a great sort of epic blockbuster movie. And the epic blockbuster movie that Nehemiah reminded me of was uh, this one that's going to be up there uh, called Man of Steel. How many of you remember seeing that movie? Well, yeah, a few, not very many. But it was a remake of Superman. And uh, in fact, if you go to the next uh, slide, the S, in the movie, Lois Lane is interviewing Superman and he's, she's asking about what's up with the suit <laughs> kind of thing. And, uh, and particularly what's up with the letter S. And then Superman gives this response. He said, well, in Krypton, where he's from, it's a symbol of hope. A symbol of hope. And so throughout the movie, the man of steel, the Superman, really becomes a voice of hope for the earth and saves the earth and uh, becomes that and embodies that symbol of hope. Well, for me, in many ways, Nehemiah is like a man of steel, like Superman, because he becomes a voice of hope for God's people at a time when they are really at a place of discouragement or despair. They're stuck. In fact, one way of thinking about hope is this idea of living into a preferred future, one that God has designed for for us, for, for you, for me. And, I, and Nehemiah recognized that God's people weren't living in, in God's way or God, in God's preferred future. And he began to see how they might move into that. And he gave them a great vision and then great leadership to give them hope, to become a voice of hope. And so I want us to, to see today two things. Really, what happened in Isaiah that he could become that voice, that person who could symbolize hope for a whole nation. And maybe, what is it that he did that, that helped lead God's people to that place of, of a preferred future? So that we might become <laughs> those people who are expecting and, and desiring to live into what God would want for us. And maybe what God would want to do in us and through us. So I want to read from Nehemiah chapter 1, and uh, I want you to just follow along. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hekeliah, in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile, and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Then I said, Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keeps his commands... 
Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins that we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly toward you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. They are your servants and your people, whom you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success by granting him favor in the presence of this man, for I was cupbearer to the king. Well, I believe that God uniquely called and equipped Nehemiah to be a voice of hope for God's people. To be a voice of hope, meaning that he believed that God had a preferred future for them. And he articulated what that meant and how they could do that. But what is it that God had to do in Nehemiah first for him to become that sort of voice of hope? I think that in order to understand that, I want to give you a little backstory. okay? I want you to understand what's happening. Well, in 722, that's when the northern kingdom of Israel was overtaken by the Babylonians, and they were scattered. But the southern kingdom, which really consisted of Judah and Jerusalem and the surrounding territory, they held on because they held fast to the word of God. But even they began straying from God's word and God's way. And over time, in 586 B.C., the Babylonians overran them and overtook them. And God's people were in exile. They were taken away from their, their homes, their property, their land. They were taken to Babylon, at least a good portion of it. Many were killed. Much of Jerusalem was destroyed. And so there they were for 70 years under Babylonian control. So you have prophets like Daniel and Ezekiel who rise up and they they speak. And, And that's in that kind of time frame that they're living and writing. Okay? Well then, a new bully on the block rises up. And the newest bully on the block is Persia. And Persia overtakes the Babylonians, just as God's prophets, particularly Isaiah, predicted. And Cyrus, the king of Persia, does a very unique thing. He allows God's people to go back to Jerusalem and rebuild and worship. He had a religious tolerance. He allowed for the conquered peoples that they, that they would take over. He would often allow them to continue worshiping as they saw fit. And he allowed a group of people to go back. But there they were, God's people. They weren't thriving. They were existing. They were living but not alive. They had lost their confidence and they'd lost their identity. And a, a host, a number of years passed by. A second wave of, of people went back under Ezra's leadership. So Ezra and Nehemiah, they were actually one book originally. But Ezra leads a group back and reminds them of who they are. And he teaches them the scripture. That they're God's chosen people. 
But Nehemiah had risen to be really second in command in Persia to now the third king, Cyrus, another king, and then Artaxerxes. And Nehemiah is cupbearer to the king. Well, what is a cupbearer? Well, a cupbearer in those days had a very important role. They were taste testers for the food and the wine. Why? Because a lot of the monarchs, the kings, and people in ruling authority were paranoid. They were convinced that people were out to get them and poison them. And so they were like a line of defense. They were like the secret service. But even more than that, they become trusted advisors. Okay? So you get in the picture? So Nehemiah is, is an advisor to the king. And he asks, he calls and he says, how are God's people, how are my people doing in Jerusalem? Well, those who survived are back in the province, but they're in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, this is what happened. So God was up to something in Nehemiah. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. So what was going on? God broke Nehemiah's heart. And he gave him a holy discontent, if you will. He'd seen that God's people were living, but not thriving. That they'd lost their confidence, they'd lost their identity, that they were just giving in to their circumstances and believing that they couldn't change, that there was no tomorrow, a good future for them. And let me just say this, and I could unpack this in so many ways, I feel like, but I want you to hear this. Whenever you are allowing circumstances, whenever you are allowing other things, other people, other things, other priorities to identify who you are, you are not fully living as God intends you to live. Now, I could say a whole lot more than that, but get this. As God's people, you are created in His image. You are holy and beloved. You are His. You are His child, His chosen one. And they'd completely forgotten that and gone away from God. And they were convinced that life could not change. Nothing was going to change. Nothing was going to get better. It is what it is. Now, how many of you have been there? <laughs> you don't have to be. Yeah. Rhetorical question. My guess is, all of us, at some point. And Nehemiah sees what's going on, and God wreaks havoc in him. Kind of crushes his spirit. I wept. Here he is living the good life. He's in the penthouse suite, friends. He's cupbearer to the king. And he's just wrecked. He's destroyed by this report. God broke Nehemiah's heart, but he also broke his spirit. And he confessed his sin and the sin of his people. Lord, he says, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants. I confess. He took responsibility for his own situation and for the situation of his people. 
I confess the sins of we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly toward you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. He fasted and he prayed and he wept and he confessed. He was broken. He had a holy discontent. There was something going on in Nehemiah. He took responsibility for the situation of his people and for himself. Now, I want you to hear this in just in a gentle way, but in a way that I want you to know. If you're in a place of discouragement or despair, if you're convinced that life cannot get better, one of the key things, I think, to move from that to a place where you can see a preferred future is you have to deal with the reality of the present. You have to come to grips with it. And you may need to confess your own role in it. Now that's a hard word. But that's what's going on. God broke Nehemiah's heart. And for him to become really a man of steel, this superman, this great leader, this person who could be a voice of hope for others, he had to break his heart first. Here's the amazing thing about Nehemiah. He didn't stay there. (laughs) So God did something in him first. Broke his heart. But he did something through him. Because Nehemiah courageously responded to the promptings of God. How did he respond? Well, he first responds, I believe, in a deep, deep trust and faith in God. A radical faith, if you will. So he says at the end of chapter 1, I was cupbearer to the king. So I'm living the penthouse life. And God wrecks me. I mean, he just tears me apart. I have this deep desire to see God's people in a better situation, a better place. But I'm cupbearer to the king. And so what does he do? He goes to the king. I took the wine and gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence. So the king asked me, Why does your face look so sad when you're not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. I was very much afraid. But I said to the king, May the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? The king said to me, What is it you want? Then I prayed. If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my ancestors are buried so that I can rebuild it. And more than that, would you also provide timbers? And more than that, would you write some letters on my behalf so that I can have free passage and so that the enemies of God's people would know that I'm here on your behalf? So, listen to that just for a second. Here's, Here's what I want you to imagine. You've been sort of given this holy discontent. You feel called by God to move your family from Grundy Center to downtown Waterloo. Okay? And because you want to go build something there, you want to go do something for the people there to serve them. Maybe it's Africa. I don't know. But Waterloo, just imagine that. And I'm imagining that you have a boss. And tomorrow, 
Monday morning, you're going to go into your boss's office. Okay? And you're going to tell your boss, you know what? God's been doing something crazy in me. And I feel like he's calling me to move myself and my family. We're going to go to Waterloo and we're going to build this thing. And guess what? I want to ask you to support me, to pay me, to do it. And guess what? I want you to buy the supplies so that I can do it. I want to give you... uh, In fact, more than that, I want you to send people with me to go do it. How many are ready to do that? (laughs) It would be crazy in some ways. Crazy. But that's what Nehemiah does. He said, look, I was cupbearer to the king. Lord, help me. I'm going to ask a huge thing of the king. In fact, king, I want you to completely empower me and to bless me and resource me so that I can go be with God's people, my people, in Jerusalem to help them do something that they haven't been able to do for 92 years. And that's rebuild their city. You know, I have to tell a quick story, and I'm going to pick on the Lindemans here just a little bit, but um, one of my mentors is John Sickink, who's father-in-law to Matt and father to Jan. And uh, he has an amazing story, by the way. And just recently he retired from a second career. (laughs) And uh, I hope I'm not embarrassing you guys. But... John was working, and I hope I am telling this truthfully, but working for Norwest Banks in Minneapolis. And um, in his early 50s, really, felt this stirring in his soul, this holy discontent, if you will, feeling like God was calling him to work for the church. And sure enough, the, the regional executive at that time was a guy by the name of Stan Vandersall, said, John, we want to hire you to help us start some new ministries. And John was thinking that that's a step that he might want to do. But my understanding, he was, he was one year away from, from full retirement and receiving all the benefits from working at Norwest Bank for a number of years. But he had the courage to go talk to his boss and say, you know what, this is going on. I've been asked to do this. And my understanding is that the boss said, Okay, John, you're one year away from retirement here. Here's what I'm going to do. We're going to pay your full salary and benefits for this year, and all you have to do is come back and tell me how it's going. And so for the last, what, 22, 25 years or so? I'm looking at you. 22 years. He's served the church, and he's helped start new churches throughout this nine-state region of the Reformed Church. Amazing. Like to me, it's like Nehemiah being lived out. Why? Because he believed that God had something, a different calling on his life, a preferred future, a, a place, a radical faith that said, I'm going to trust what God is doing. A deep trust. More than that, Nehemiah, I believe, if we go back to the story, also had a personal commitment and a strategic plan to see something happen. So, 
In other words, he wasn't just a leader who said, yeah, we're going to do this, this, and this. No, he invested himself. It says in verse 11, chapter 2, I went to Jerusalem, and after staying there three days, I set out during the night with a few others. I had not told anyone what God, my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. So he went with his cavalry from the king, toured the city, took a look at the walls, made an assessment. Then he gathered all the officials and all God's people and kind of the leaders of God's people. The officials did not know where I'd gone or what I was doing because as yet I had said nothing to the Jews or the priests or nobles or officials for, or any others who would be doing the work. But then he gathered them and said this, You see the trouble we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins, and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem, and we will no longer be in disgrace. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God on me, and what the king had said to me. And they replied, Let us start rebuilding. So they began this good work. So, Nehemiah, wrecked by God, broken heart toward God's people, acts in faith, goes and has a plan. A plan to rebuild the wall, to give them identity as a people. And rallies the troops, if you will, and says, hey, we can do this. We can do this. This is what God wants us to do. Now, the unique thing about Nehemiah, I want you to hear this too. He was not only a great leader and a person who had great skills of leadership, came up with a great plan, but he also had a deep and abiding trust in God. And he held those two things in tension. In fact, in 11 of the 13 chapters in the book, it says that Nehemiah prayed. He prayed. So if we are to be people who could be a voice of hope for someone else, or maybe even our own lives, we could begin to see that God has a plan for us. My friends, I'm convinced that we need to hold those things together, that we need to be ready to respond to what God has for us, but we need to have a deep and abiding trust and faith in who God is and what He wants to do. And I guarantee you, what happens with Nehemiah will also happen to us. But So they declare, hey, we're going to start rebuilding. They start rebuilding. The very next verse, Sanballat and Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite, and Geshem and the Arab heard about it, and they mocked and ridiculed us. What is this you're doing, they asked. Are you rebelling against the king? I answered them by saying, the God of heaven will give us success. We, his servants, will start rebuilding. But as for you, you have no share in Jerusalem or any claim or historic right to it. My guess is, my friends, whenever you want to do something in the name of the God of heaven, you will face resistance. And you better be prepared. You will face resistance. Nehemiah, however, refused to give up. He had a perseverance. Now yesterday, I don't know if you knew this, but yesterday was the um, anniversary of D-Day. And so I, I found the letter 
that President Eisenhower sent to the soldiers that day. I just want to read there what it says. You are about to embark upon the great crusade toward, toward which we have striven these many months. The eyes of the world are upon you. The hopes and prayers of liberty-loving people everywhere march with you. In company with our brave allies and brothers-in-arms on other fronts, you will bring about the destruction of the German war machine, the elimination of Nazi tyranny over the oppressed peoples of Europe, and security for ourselves in a free world. Your task will not be an easy one. Your enemy is well-trained, well-equipped, and battle-hardened. He will fight savagely. But this is the year, 1944. Much has happened since the Nazi triumphs of 1940 and 41. The United Nations have inflicted upon the Germans great defeats. And he goes on to say this, The tide has turned. The free men of the world are marching together to victory. I have full confidence in your courage, devotion to duty, and skill in battle. We will accept nothing less than a full victory. Good luck, and let us beseech the blessing of Almighty God upon this great and noble undertaking. Amazing. People who become voices of hope often know the cost that it will take to get there. Whenever you endeavor to do something that the Lord has placed on your heart, this holy discontent, you will face opposition. I believe it. All of the enemies of of God's people, they're saying, hey, you can't do that. What are you doing? And sure enough, they started attacking and doing different things. But more than that, it says in chapter 4, there was also turmoil from within. The people in Judah said, oh, the strength of the laborers is giving out. There's so much rubble that we cannot rebuild the wall. Before they know it or see us, we'll be right there among them and they will kill and kill them and put, put an end to the work. Our enemies are too great. We're tired. The wall is too, too destroyed. We can't do this. My guess is, friends, as we embark on God's mission for us as God's people, one of the challenges for us is to stay encouraged. So what does Nehemiah do? He said, look, okay, here's what you do. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to fight for your family and your neighbors. And I want you to go to the wall that's closest to your backyard. And I want you to start in your backyard. That's where you begin this work. Go build the wall in your backyard and fight for your neighbor. And fight for your family. And rebuild the wall there. In fact, when you're ready, you build and your neighbor will got your back. Okay? And guard it. And when you get tired, then you guard their back and they'll build. And that's how we're going to do this. And then in chapter 6, almost as an afterthought, Nehemiah is again praying. (laughs) Remember Tobiah and Sambalit, my God, because of what they have done. Remember also these naysayers and the rest of the prophets who tried to intimidate me and, and our people. And in verse 15 it says, So the wall was completed on the 25th of Elul in 52 days. In 52 days, God accomplished through Nehemiah what God's people couldn't do in 92 years. He did it in 52 days.
I don't know where you are. (laughs) I don't know your situation or your circumstance. But I do want you to know that God is a God of hope. And he has a place for you even to become a voice of hope for others. I want to just end with this. There's a verse in Second Chronicles, chapter 16. I'm sure you read it, right? Second Chronicles, one of the easy ones to read in the Bible. Let's tuck back in there in the midst of all this history. It's an amazing little verse. It says, For the eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. Let me just read it again. For the eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. Is God giving you sort of holy discontent? God is looking for those whose hearts are in tune with him. And he wants to strengthen them. And he wants to use them. And he wants to bless them so that they can be a blessing to others. Nehemiah was a man of steel. I'm convinced because he had a heart that was broken before God and he had a deep and abiding trust that God would lead him, no matter the circumstances, to this place of joy and freedom and life. I want to do that together as a body. Live this life that God is calling us to. We've got some walls to build. We've got some work to do. But let's do it together. Let's pray. Dear God, thank you so much for the story of Nehemiah and all that uh, this story intends to... to, uh, to share with us. Lord, there's so much in here. But I want to pray today for those who maybe are in a place of discouragement or despair and recognize, Lord, that you are God of hope, that we can change, that we can overcome the circumstances uh, that we are in to move into that preferred future, that place with you where we are safe and secure. God, I I think, too, that maybe some of us today are being stirred, that our worlds are being shaken, that you are stirring up in us something good. I pray that we would have the courage to follow your lead. Lord, thank you so much for the goodness and grace that you extend to us, that we are your children, your beloved. Help us to know and remember that always. I pray that in Jesus' name.